Chapter 23. Growth by Peter A. Victor. Economic growth is usually defined as an increase in the goods and services produced by an economy in a given period of time, typically a year. The essence of economic growth, as normally understood, is the increase in gross domestic product, GDP, in a country. This may sound simple, but there are many questions that arise when it comes to measuring economic growth. For example, which goods and services are to be included? What if their quality changes over time? How are the many different types of goods and services, from bananas to haircuts, to be added up to get a total that can be said to be growing, or not? Since the 1940s, the United Nations has led an international effort to establish procedures for measuring GDP that all countries are encouraged to follow. The UN procedures have answers to these and other questions on the scope and methods for calculating GDP and changes in it over time. A fundamental principle when measuring economic growth is to distinguish between increases in GDP that result from increases in the quantity of goods and services produced, i.e. increases in real GDP, and increases in GDP that result simply from increases in their prices, i.e. increases in nominal GDP. In practice, both quantities and prices change over time, and new products and services replace old ones, all of which complicate the measurement of real economic growth. The history of economics is full of attempts to explain economic growth. The classical economists, notably Adam Smith and David Ricardo, emphasized the contribution of specialization, the division of labor, and the extent of markets, and foreign trade based on comparative advantage as key sources of economic growth. Later, in the 19th century and into the 20th century, there were various attempts to classify growth according to stages, through which, presumably, every economy had to pass as it expanded, though with very different outcomes. Where Karl Marx in 1887 saw economic growth in its capitalist phase as containing the seeds of its own destruction, at the other end of the ideological spectrum, W. W. Rostow, in 1960, saw takeoff, maturity, and high mass consumption as stages in a process of self-sustaining economic growth. Somewhere between these two perspectives are the insights of Joseph Schumpeter. He popularized the term creative destruction to describe the process by which new innovations destroy older technologies and the businesses which depend on them to be replaced by new, more profitable ones. In his General Theory of Employment, Interest and Money, in 1936, John Maynard Keynes explained that unemployment was caused by insufficient spending. He emphasized the role of investment in new buildings, equipment and infrastructure, which fluctuates more than other components of a nation's expenditures, e.g. consumption and government. But he paid little attention to the role that investment plays in expanding the productive capacity of the economy over time. In the 1950s and 1960s, this aspect of investment became the focus of attention of neoclassical economists who produced mathematical models of economic growth in which the accumulation of capital and technological change play a pivotal role by increasing labor productivity. Increased labor productivity, i.e. GDP per employed hour, combined with a rising labor force yields economic growth. However, while these economists, Robert Solow being the most famous example, 
recognized the importance of technological change in economic growth, their models did not explain how it came about. This was subsequently addressed under, heading, under the heading of endogenous growth theory in the 1980s, which, with the right assumptions about investment and innovation, suggested that the process of economic growth could go on forever. An alternative to endogenous growth theory came from those who saw economic growth as a physical process as well as an economic one. Explanations of economic growth, they said, must be based on principles from the natural sciences as much as on economic ones. Robert Ayers, in 2008, made the case that exergy, i.e. useful work obtained from energy, and not technological change is the omitted variable in the neoclassical growth theory of Robert Solow. By analyzing the 100-year history of economic growth in Japan and the USA, he found that it is no longer necessary to call upon technological change to account for that part of economic growth not attributable to increases in capital and labor. Ayers concluded that, and I quote, we can be quite certain that exergy is indeed a third factor of production, and that future economic growth depends essentially on continued declines in the cost of primary exergy and or on increased increase in the output of useful work from a decreasing exergy input. Critiques of economic growth have a history almost as long as economic growth itself. Malthus, a contemporary of Smith and Ricardo, argued that increases in population would inevitably outpace increases in food production, making a sustained increase in living standards unachievable. Most economists repudiated Malthus, but the attention he paid to the capacity of natural systems to support ever-expanding economies remains a primary line of critique of economic growth to this day. Most recently, these limits have been expressed as planetary boundaries, such as climate change, biodiversity loss, ocean acidification, and, and interference with biophysical cycles, plus concern about diminishing sources of low-cost fossil fuels on which economic growth has depended for two centuries. So even if economic growth remains desirable, it may not be possible. The downward trend in the rate of economic growth in many advanced countries since the 1960s suggests that its demise may be nearer than most expect. But is economic growth still so important in rich countries? As early as 1848, John Stuart Mill bemoaned, quote, the trampling, crushing, elbowing, and treading in each other's heels which form the existing type of social life and went on to describe many of the negative aspects of economic growth so familiar today. Ezra Mission's book, The Cost of Economic Growth, in 1967, sparked a lively debate punctuated by the celebrated Limits to Growth of 1972, which contained scenarios of expansion and collapse bearing an unnerving correspondence to the data of the past 40 years, as shown by Turner in 2012. Others have challenged the usually implicit assumption that economic growth in advanced economies improves well-being. Rather than assume that higher, higher incomes make people happier, researchers have investigated the supposed connection and found it difficult to demonstrate. It seems that beyond income levels surpassed by many in advanced economies, further increases in income add little to self-declared levels of happiness. And then there's the line of critique that says that increases in GDP, taken to be synonymous with economic growth, 
are a deeply flawed measure of anything of real significance. GDP can increase for all sorts of reasons unrelated to well-being. If activities normally conducted without a financial transaction become a matter of commerce, GDP will rise. This may partly explain unusually high rates of economic growth in developing countries. Rather than real increases in production, GDP rises because commercialization and commodification replace more traditional practices. Similarly, increases in GDP may be at the expense of resource depletion and environmental contamination, neither aspect being captured in the controversial, sorry, in the conventional measure of e economic growth. Neither are increases in inequality. Although by some measures overall global inequality has decreased in the past two decades, the majority of the world's population lives in countries which have experienced increasing income inequality. And feminist scholars have drawn attention to disparities between the economic circumstances of men and women to which GDP is blind, as further evidence of the inadequacy of its validity as a measure of well-being. There are two main reasons why these critiques of economic growth matter. First, by pursuing economic growth as a primary policy objective, economies may well be failing to meet other objectives that would contribute more directly to well-being and prosperity, such as full employment, more leisure, richer social lives, greater democratic participation, and a resilient environment. Second, in an ecologically and resource-constrained world, the pursuit of economic growth in rich countries is likely to be at the expense of economic growth in developing countries where its benefits are more apparent. For all these reasons, it's time for those living in advanced economies to think about managing without growth, or even with degrowth.